Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Uh, today, I have Isabella Reeves. Uh, she's a PhD candidate uh, going for a degree in marine biology at the Cetacean Research Center. She's also part of the Southern Shark Ecology Group. And we're going to talk about a very unusual topic, uh, the genomics of killer whales, which I think will be very fascinating. So, Isabella, welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me on today. Yeah, tell me uh, a whale's tale of uh, how you got interested in, in this area and you know some of your background. For sure. So I've always wanted to work with dolphins ever since I was a kid. I remember being on the beach with mum and telling her that what did I need to be to work with dolphins? And she told me I needed to be a marine biologist. So that's kind of where that all started. And every decision I've made since then has been to make sure I've had the best opportunity of getting into this career pathway. I went through my undergraduate doing marine biology um, in South Australia and I um, expanded my network doing some internships and volunteering um, and research assistant gigs all over the world, uh, mostly for marine megafauna, so sharks, dolphins, whales, turtles as well. And um, now I'm doing my PhD that's focused on killer whale genomics. So I've somehow lucked out and been able to work, I think, on the coolest dolphin in the ocean. How do you even get to close enough to killer whales to sample anything from them? What's that like? Oh, well, that's a great question. So killer whales are actually the most widespread species in the world after humans, but they like to inhabit some really remote, harsh places. So one of the field sites, or both the field sites I do field work in, one is a tropical location in northwestern Australia, which is really remote not easy to get to. In winter where we do field work, it's already reaching, you know, 30 degrees and in summer it's about 50 degrees. And then we work in a temperate region in the offshore of Western Australia as well in the south. And that is basically like the Southern Ocean at its finest. So as you can imagine, not easy conditions to work in already. And when you've got something that moves really quickly, um, they're hard to spot. They're not always there. There's no like reliable location. We kind of just have to look until we get lucky or until someone phones us. Um, but they're super elusive and some days we get lucky, some days we don't. But as you can imagine, getting samples and things is a years and years worth of work rather than being able to sample some seaweed or something off the beach on one day. Definitely quite difficult, but we, for my work, so the genetics, we need a little bit of skin. So we actually use a modified crossbow that has a um, dart on it and the dart collects about a, a little fingernail worth of skin, which we're able to use for all types of genetic analysis, as well as um, the blubber it collects, and that can be used for a lot of health and diet questions as well. If you, so you shoot the dart at the killer whale, does it really impact it much, and how do you get the dart back? Great question. So in terms of impact, no, we haven't really, they're not really bothered by it. Most of the time they still hang around the boat. There's rarely ever a reaction, and we do not, we only uh, sample animals that are old enough so ones that are adults or they're pretty big sub-adults so like you know getting towards 10 of the age 10 upwards and um, we definitely do not shoot calves but yeah they mostly just seem curious when it happens like sometimes I actually go back and check the dart um, and I'm like oh what was that 
But as you can imagine, like if something like that's probably the equivalent of us getting an injection. In terms Does of retrieving, fall off of them in the water and float, or how do you get it back? Yeah, so um, it flick basically just flicks into them and it rebounds, and then we just go collect it. So sometimes there has been a few occasions where we've had to fend off birds, but we just have to keep our eyes on it and we collect it back with a net. Is the sample encapsulated as soon as it's taken? Like, how do you avoid contamination with the seawater and eight million other things going along around it? <laughs> Yeah, that's a very good question. So the dart itself is kind of like, um, it has like a little metal canister on it. So when the skin's taken, it's in this metal canister that has barbs in it. So it doesn't move anywhere. And of course, there's a little bit of interaction with the seawater, but we really can't do anything about that. But because when you're looking at a chunk of killer whale skin, there's so much more killer whale DNA in that compared to whatever else is in the ocean that whatever else is in there, it gets like taken out when you're doing all the data quality checking stuff. Um, and that's like go same for like lab contamination stuff. So possibly from me, for instance. When you collect the sample, do you keep it in seawater? Because, you know, I mean, the, the whale is exposed to it constantly. If you let it dry out and sit in the air, I would guess that would dramatically alter the sample very quickly. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're definitely right there. So it uh, depends on what the sample's being used for, but they're always, the skin's always put in ethanol and that helps preserve the DNA in it. And then that gets put in a freezer. On site, sometimes we are lucky and we do have like a, um, a dry shipper, so it's like negative 80 in there already. But most of the time it gets chucked in a minus 20 freezer until we're back um, at uni and then it gets put into the minus 80 for long-term storage. But if we were to keep it out um, in the weather, especially in the weather we have in Australia, the samples would de- the quality would be terrible and we wouldn't get anything out of it. So we do have to be really careful about preserving them right. How do you know you're um, sampling a male or a female or with the age of the animal? Like, how can you tell visually? That's a great question. So in terms of age, it's really hard when you've come in from, you know, we've, so these populations in Australia, we've really just started working on them just for over a decade. My collaborator and supervisor, John Totterdale, started this project and he actually found one of the groups in Bremer Subbasin when he was doing fisheries research. So in terms of those animals' ages, it's always a bit hard to gauge, but from that moment, we've been taking photo ID data and we've been able to track um, how old their offspring and things are from that. There is actually new ageing methods now that you can use from DNA analysis that we hope to do in the future. In terms of sexing, though, there's two ways. So in the field, the best, the easiest way is that mature males, they have this really large elongated dorsal fin. So it's like really tall it can be up to about two meters and that's one of the main indicators and for females they have more of like a surfboard looking fin however in saying that it can be tricky because when we call them sprouters but when there's a male and he's a teenager essentially his fin starts to grow but you don't really know if he's a boy or a girl unless you see the underbelly um, at some point until he's a bit older. So that's when genetics comes in and plays a huge factor is that when we take these uh, genetic samples, I can actually also look at their sex. So if they are a possible male, we can work that out. And we actually had a situation a few years ago where we swore this one animal was a female and then all of a sudden I was looking at its DNA and I was like, hang on, it's a male. And I did it a few times because I thought I had stuffed up and we looked at it and the next season the spin had started growing into like more of a male type looking fin. So it can definitely be tricky, but we do have some good gauges um, just based on looking at them in the field that can help. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science 
and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now, back to the show. Okay. So now on to the genomics of the killer whale. What what do you see? What's uh, interesting or unusual about it? For sure. So I have been working in um, the genomics side for a while. It's kind of my main area in the killer whale team in Australia here. So we do know that we have two different populations in Australia, or at least two different populations, and they're actually both from in Western Australia, one in the tropics and one in the temperate regions. And What's actually really interesting is my most current work was looking at, at killer whales a little bit differently than we had previously. So killer whales in Australia have seemed to have changed a lot in the last hundred of years. And well, from about 1840 to 1930, there was a group reported in southeastern Australia, um, in the south of New South Wales, in a town called Eden, um, in a bay called Twofold Bay, that actually used to help whalers hunt baleen whales, which sounds ludicrous when you think about it, but it seems that the whales in the area, they would come when the baleen whales were coming, baleen whales being big whales like humpback whales, southern right whales, etc. And it seemed that the white whalers at the time and the whalers working in that industry were unable to actually have a successful industry without the killer whales' involvement. And the killer whales, I don't think, would have been able to actually be able to access the carcasses without uh, the whalers either. So what used to happen was, and it's been well recorded in journals and things, is that when there was a baleen whale in the areas, part of the group of the killer whales would actually come into the bay, they'd start slapping their tails in the water, and that would indicate to the whalers that they needed to row out their boat. So they would row out these really dingy boats that were nine metres long, um, they were open, and they would go out night or day. So as you can imagine, they fell out quite a lot. And the killer whales hadn't alert, alerted them, were already rounding up this baleen whale and harassing it and wearing it out. So that would have included things like jumping on it to help trying to drown it, just hitting at it from um, the sides to help ram it and give it some shock. But what they actually needed from the whalers, they needed the whalers to harpoon the whale because they couldn't kill it by themselves. So up until recently, we hadn't actually seen killer whales taking down adult baleen whales. This, that was something that up until 2019, that... It was only recorded in Eden and that was with the help of humans. So after the whalers harpooned the whale and killed it, they'd leave it on a buoy overnight or up to 48 hours and the killer whales would then actually just take the tongue um, through the throat region of the animal and then the whalers would then pick that up. So that was something that had been recorded for a while. What do you mean? Uh, killer whales would eat the tongue or what do you mean? Yeah, so the killer whales would actually consume the tongue but leave the rest of the carcass and in 1930, the last killer whale from that group was actually spotted and he passed. The rest of them had disappeared up until that point. Um, and his skeleton is actually in a museum in Eden. So my, well, part of my PhD, I wanted to look at the history of Australian killer whales. And I think, you know, that story is already something so special, but I really wanted to understand if we could work out the origin or the fate of these animals and if they still exist today. So what we actually did is we drilled into one of the last killer whale's teeth. So his name was Old Tom, which is in the museum. And we actually wanted to try to see if we could get DNA. So we were a little bit 
scared about the process because of course Australia is a very hot place and typically when people have used skeletal remains from things like Neanderthals or mammoths they've been preserved in like permafrost or in really cold regions so the DNA has had like natural preservation whereas in Australia as you can imagine the heat and not being in a typical museum it's not one where there's temperature control and all of this old Tom's been on display for a long time so after we drew it into old Tom's teeth I went to a special lab in Norway that does ancient DNA work and basically you dress up as someone from ET and you go in there and you try um, your very best not to contaminate anything because normally you're working with really low amounts of DNA from these skeletal remains and we got really lucky we actually did get DNA from old Tom and because of my colleagues work and our work for the last decade, we had a lot of modern killer whale samples from the populations today all over Australia and also all over the world that we could actually compare them to, to be like, hey, can we find any of his DNA in any killer whales today or have they gone extinct? So the main um, results from uh, this current work was that Old Tom and the Killers of Eden were actually most similar to New Zealand killer whales, which was quite interesting because current killer whales today aren't that similar to New Zealand killer whales at all. However, in saying this, although they are similar, they're also very distinct from them. Um, And this actually suggests that due to the lack of uh, DNA sharing with that population and other populations globally, that that lineage is now extinct, which is quite sad. However, in put that into context... The part of my research was also trying to increase the amount of Indigenous history that had been not included in the story previously. It had been a little bit whitewashed based on the journals at the time and whatnot. And we actually, by working with an elder in the area and traditional owner, were actually able to identify that this relationship started prior to colonisation in Australia. So it had been long-lasting and the Thoa people of Eden, which was the uh, mob in the area, do have dreamtime stories and whatnot of this relationship with the killer whales. And when we're looking at these sort of relationships with Indigenous tribes today and mobs um, from all over the world, a lot of these relationships are extinct. And of course, around the time that Old Tom had died, there was a lot of whaling pressure and the baleen whales had started to decrease dramatically. So it could be a lot of factors that have led to their extinction. I wonder yeah. if anyone calls the uh, killer whales sea dogs because they seem to be like dogs. They relate to people and hunt with them and, you know, not necessarily hang out with them. But Yeah, for sure. It is amazing. I've heard that not dogs, but sea wolves, which I think, you know... <laughs> definitely is something and they do have a lot of similarities with wolves like their pack behavior and also their loyalty I think to their pods and their groups and you know prey sharing and all of this as well but yeah no they're quite amazing these animals and you know even like a story like that genomics even can play a part in understanding if there's descendants and whatnot today which actually gives um I think you know genetics a cool twist to what people currently think about it. So what do you see in the genetics do you see any interesting like endogenized retroviruses or you know, they have an unusual number of chromosomes. Like, what, what do you see? Um, so my work's mostly based on the evolution of killer whales with particular focus on the Australasian ones. And like old Tom, that was part of this work, so looking at the history of the uh, killer whales today. But in terms of what I've found out as well, at the moment, the ones in Australia, at least, they look to be genetically healthy. So there's, I don't do specific disease testing things, but there's no reason for us to assume that as of yet. Um, they look like they're doing okay from um, other aspects of research. 
But yeah, I think the killer whales in Australia are not like the ones that we find elsewhere just because they're so new. So we're still trying to understand these, but the baseline information about them. They're not like the ones in the North Pacific where they've been being studied for, you know, over 50 years now, um, where they're able to answer some really nitty gritty details. But we hope that to some point we'll be up there when we start having long-term photo ID data and stuff, then we're able to track the animals a lot better. And as, you know, my work and my colleagues' work is coming out, we'll be able to answer some bigger, broader questions. Well, how many different species of killer whales are there? So there's actually only one species of killer whales currently identified. So it is just killer whales, so it will seen as orca. People are debating whether there might be some subspecies in there, but currently there is at least 10 different forms that are identified um, and they all look a bit different and they all can behave differently, but not always. Um, and they're located in different regions of the world. So the ones that you find in Antarctica, for instance, are different to the ones you find in the North Pacific. Okay. Um, and again, looking at the genetics of the whales, have you been able to look at the sequences of them and, you know, are you able to compare them to other sequences that have been gotten from, like you said, the, you know, Northern Hemisphere whales that have been more accessible and more studied for 50 years? Yeah, yeah. So that's exactly what I've been doing. So to understand how killer whales in Australia have come about, we need to understand first how they've evolved in other places. And a lot of people have done a really good job of doing that. But my work's been able to add on to that and put the Australian and New Zealand uh, population on a pedestal. So even old Tom, I compared him to killer whales all over the world and and even the ones in Australia, I'm currently doing that now, but that work's currently in progress, so I can't say too much about it at the moment, unfortunately. So what's next in your uh, in your research? What are you hoping to figure out the next you know, couple of years, or you still have to just you know work through the data for your PhD, and that's going to consume your time for a while? Uh, well, I'm hoping to submit my PhD in the next year, which is kind of crazy, <laughs> um, but I'll be okay. The next few years... I mean, it's really up to what jobs are available as well, but I'm really hoping that my work can help us understand um, and contribute to conservation management um, locally as well. There's currently not a lot done for killer whales in Australia because we really don't know much about them that, you know, can contribute to that baseline data that's needed for conservation management. But I really hope that we're able, I start focusing on these groups that we really don't know much about like the tropical regions of the world is somewhere that I'm super interested in I think in terms of what we know about killer whales we know a lot about these populations in high quantities um, in the high latitude regions like the North Pacific like Antarctica like North the North Atlantic but the places in low region or low latitudes like um, Australia and New Zealand and even further up in the tropics like we still know relatively little about them and I think they're a massive missing puzzle in the scheme of killer whale evolution so I'm, i would be really excited to disentangle some of their history very good uh, isabella what's the best place for people to learn more about your research and to keep tabs on it where can they go uh, my twitter account's probably one of the main ones to check on me personally but my colleagues um, run project orca and that will give you updates um, they've got facebook twitter instagram same killer whales australia and cetric uh, wa um, and they both um, field updates, paper updates, research updates, and anything else we may be involved in, like documentaries and whatnot. Okay, well, very good. Well, Isabella, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. 
If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.